This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Welcome to Bobcast. This is episode 29. I am Andrew Smith. I'm Caleb Castro. Today we have a very special guest with us, someone who, if you've been with us for a while on Bobcast, you've heard his name. He's been involved in the translation of many of Herman Bovink's works into English and has authored several books and articles on Bovink's theology and historical context. And his most recent work was just released a few weeks ago, Bovink, A Critical Biography, which is available from Baker Academic. He is the Meldrum Senior Lecturer in Reformed Theology at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland, Dr. James Eglinton. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Eglinton. Thank you, Andrew. It's great to be with you on the Bavcast. Well, then, uh, you know, I guess we'll start off with uh, what's likely the burning question uh, that we all have here. Did Andrew actually pronounce uh, Edinburgh correctly? He did. Yeah, that was good. Yeah, uh, really? Not Edinburgh. It's Edinburgh. If you're, if you're really local, though, you call it Embra. That's good to know. Yeah. I'm not quite that sharp. But um, while we're on the issue of pronunciation of words... So uh, an internal discussion we've had here amongst ourselves is how to pronounce Bovink's name. So some are Bovink, some say Bavink. Who's right? Yeah, so actually the first challenge is getting the, his first name right too. Uh, Hermann. It's a, it's a tough one for non-Dutch people with a ruling R. And then the surname Bavink. So it's a slightly longer A. And then the V is pronounced more like an F. So it's not really Bavink, it's Bavink. Um, but anyway, it's uh, the, the joyful challenges of the Dutch language. Well, there you have it. Consistent mm. with our nature, we've been pronouncing it wrong the whole time. So we are now the Bathcast. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to more serious matters. So, Dr. Eglinton, you are one of the foremost Bovink scholars in the world. You've done a lot of work in the area of Bovink study. So tell us a little bit about your journey, how you got on this path, how you became interested in Bovink. Yeah, so I am Presbyterian by background, um, and I went to seminary here in Scotland. At that time, it was called the Free Church College, and Edinburgh Theological Seminary. And I was a seminarian when Bavinck's dogmatics were being translated into English. So um I guess I kind of joined this movement at the same time as other people did as a reader initially and really liked what I was reading. It was rich and stimulating theology, um, engaged very thoughtfully with scripture and um, managed to do that alongside pretty exceptional historical theology. And I could see that Bavink was doing very creative things with that doctrine and meeting the needs of his own day as well. Um, so I got into him at that stage of life and then progressed from that, from seminary onto a PhD at the University of Edinburgh that was also on Bavink. And um, I've never really looked back. Um, so I got on the Bavink train early and I'm still quite, quite happily journeying along. Well, good. So your most recent project was Bavink, a critical biography. 
what motivated you to write this book and maybe tell us a little bit about your process in writing this book, your research? Yeah, sure. It's not my first book on Mavink, uh, as you already acknowledged. So my first book on Mavink really grew out of my PhD thesis, and it was much more theological than biographical. And it was on Mavink's understanding of the Trinity and how the Trinity is revealed in the creation. So in the, the universe around us is not the general revelation of some like deity and abstraction, but it's actually the general revelation of the triune God. Um, so it was on how Mavink understood that, and uh, he does some really interesting and creative things with um, with understanding understanding the doctrine of God in relation to the world in which we live. That's the general revelation of God. Um, but in the background to that book, there is a there's a biography that was waiting to be written because that book did a lot with um, what other people had written about Mavink, and particularly in the English-speaking world, also in, in, in the Netherlands as well, over the last few decades. And um, it pushed back a lot against the claim that, that Herman Mavink was a very divided thinker, a very conflicted theologian who couldn't decide whether he was really you know, an orthodox Calvinist um, with a high view of scripture and with a commitment to the tradition of the church, or whether he was a thoroughly modern person who was all about engagement with whatever social um, political debates were happening in his day or, or intellectual debates. So I find lots of sources that would speak about the modern Bavink and the orthodox Bavink and that were theologically uh, oriented books and articles. But there's also a biographical claim that's implicit in all of those, that Bavink was this very conflicted person who just didn't know uh, which crowd he wanted to run with and who he really was. And um, I really pushed back against that way of thinking about Bavink in general in my first book and argued that actually he's a far more united thinker than we've given him credit for. And my first book was really an attempt to set that out theologically, how his theology isn't really conflicted in that sense at all, uh, and how theologically he has all kinds of reasons for wanting to be an orthodox Calvinist, but he's also a participant in the in a modern intellectual context. Um, so that was my first book, but it wasn't a biography. But as I said, there was a biography that was waiting to be waiting to emerge, I guess. And um, that's what emerged, I guess, in the, the years since then. Um, the more I went on writing about Bavink, writing shorter pieces, I think the more I realized that the follow up to my first book really needed to be a biography. Um, so I, I'd spent lots of time over the years in the Bavink archive at the Free University of Amsterdam and um, in the City Archive in Kampen and um, gathering resources and immersing myself in, in his letters and his unpublished manuscripts and his diaries um, in the newspapers of the day, um, and of which there, there are very, very many, and they follow Bavink from, from birth to death. Uh, so he, he has that kind of public prominence um, as a, a, the son of a prominent pastor, and then he becomes a significant public figure himself. Um, so I had so much to tell, and when I looked at the the Bavink biographies that had already been written in Dutch and in English, um, I didn't think that any of them really had um, had told the story about Bavink that I wanted to tell, which I thought was um, was this picture of someone who has quite remarkable ways of thinking theologically about how to live a, a unified life as a Christian, um, but in his own historical context as well. Um, so the, the I guess the product of all of those um, strivings is the book that we're we're talking about now, the biography. So it's been many years in the making. It's, it's quite fun that it's not out and I get the chance to talk about it with people. Yeah, 
it's uh, definitely a much-needed thing, and it's been an enjoyable read. Uh, I admit I haven't finished it yet. Uh, the semester has definitely been uh, non-stop, but yeah, being about halfway through it now, I mean, it's, it's just been an absolute absolute joy to read. Um, it's just fascinating. We're curious, though, with... Uh, you digging through the archives during your research phase of this, you know, what, what sort of uh, things, I guess, uh, stuck out to you particularly or took you by surprise about Bob Inc.? Or perhaps uh, in addition, um, maybe you could tell us something that didn't make its way into the book as well that you might have liked. Okay. Uh, thanks. Those are, yeah, those are really excellent questions. Um, you know, I think like, maybe the best way for me to explain it is like this, that in my earlier work, before I got into the biography, I spent a lot of time pushing back against people talking about two Bavinks, where one was the Orthodox Bavink and one was the modern Bavink, and when, where these are two figures who exist in tension to each other. Um, so I spent a lot of time, I spent years, trying to get people to talk about one Bavink and, and rethink how they approach his thoughts. <clears throat> but I guess what surprised me in the process of writing the biography was how I had to start talking about two Bavinks again, but not Orthodox and modern rather the young Bavink and the mature Bavink. Um, so there's there's a very definite process of development um, intellectually that you can trace with Bavink. Um, you know, he doesn't kind of pop out of the womb as this fully formed dogmatician. Uh, and in fact, what you find when you read his teenage diaries is that he's this, in some ways, a, a goofy teenager who's writing really terrible romantic poetry for this girl that he's in love with, um, but who's also writing down Bible verses that are encouraging him as he tries to um, work out how to be a, a Christian teenager uh, if, if some of his friends aren't committed to that. You know, how do you walk with God in that kind of a context? And, and he's very much a teenager, um, which should be no surprise to anyone who thinks historically, of course, um, because People don't live in a vacuum and our lives develop and we're subject to all kinds of influences that change how we think. Um, but it was, so I, I guess I realized that, that um, I needed to have a far more nuanced picture of the young Bavink, but then also be able to trace the development of the mature Bavink, is the Bavink we know from the Reformed dogmatics and from philosophy of revelation and Christian worldview. So how does he get there? Um, because the, the neo-Calvinist movement that he was part of didn't exist in his childhood or his teenage years. Uh, it's something that developed over um, a few decades in his early life. But um, you know, it wasn't a word even that had been termed neo-Calvinist until he was uh, until he was um, you know, well through his young adulthood, for example. So um, that's maybe something that surprised me is, is how much my work has now become repopularizing, talking about two Bavinks, um, but just a different two Bavinks to before, where it's not um, tension within himself, but it's rather that we can now have a far more nuanced grasp of just how his life takes shape, how he learned how to think. Um, how he came into Abraham Kuyper's orbit, for example, and how that affected how he thought, how it made him quite isolated in the seminary where he taught, and then, um, and then also how his relationship to Kuyper and Kuyper's thought changes a bit when, uh, when he goes to teach at the Free University of Amsterdam and Dutch culture changes profoundly around him. That um, starts to de-Christianize. So uh, you see all these new emphases develop in his thought, like promoting evangelism, uh, which becomes a very significant part of Bavink's vocabulary in the last couple of decades of life in a way that it had not been as a young professor, for example. So I'm surprised by that, by the, um, I guess, just how much now um, I talk to people about why there really were two Bavinks. Um, mm -hmm. The second part of your question was, are there things that I decided to leave out of the biography, uh, which is a very perceptive question, actually, to ask a biographer, because biographical writing is inherently selective if you have a lot of sources to go with. 
Um, I think the the longest biography of of Winston Churchill is 500,000 words long or, or something incredible like that. And you could aim for something like that with Bavinck as well, because if you go to the Bavinck archive um, in Amsterdam, there are just reams and reams of handwritten, unpublished manuscripts, um, just the amount of letters that he left behind as well. It was really quite incredible. And he had such an engaged life in journalism, politics, uh, all of these things as well as theology. And there's so much there that you could talk about. You could write a 500,000 word biography of Bavinck if you had the time to. Um, but the question is with that kind of a biography, and this you have to ask yourself this as a biographer, who will read it? And is this the kind of biography that people need in order to understand his life and his works and to make far more sense of his own writings, which was really my goal as a biographer? So there are, so I, I did lots of reading around um, Bavinck's political involvement, for example. Uh, you know, he had a really interesting career as a politician. For a short time, he was a he was the leader of a political party, and it went pretty badly. Actually, he was really mm -hmm. ill-suited to it in terms of character. Um, and then after that, he spent um, the last decade of his life as a member of parliament and was very engaged there and did a great job in many ways. Um, so I, I did lots of reading around his political life. In terms of the background details, um, there's already quite a lot written on that aspect of his life and work in Dutch, um, so Bremer's biography in particular in Dutch. Mm. Um, but I think for particularly for an international audience, which is what I'm, my biography is trying to um, target, I guess, and make Bavink accessible to, um, it would be very easy to get stuck in the weeds, I think, of you know, the minutiae of which committees he was at, which other politicians were on those committees, which debates did they have, and there were many, many debates. Um, but I think if you were to do that, the biography would get quite imbalanced quite quickly. And um, it, it, there's probably a level of detail there that's just not necessary for um, the kind of person who I think needs to read this biography, which is someone who's, who's you know, reads dogma the dogmatics, um, who's a seminarian, who's... Um, um, you know, who's reading him to um, for, for the kind of engine of the theology that they're preaching on Sundays. Mm -hmm. um, so there are all kinds of choices like that where um, I haven't included things um, in terms of a lot of content in the main body of the text. But if you look at the book, it also has quite a thick section of end notes at, at the end. So for a really seriously interested reader who then wants to step from the biography into you know, becoming a super nerd on Bavinck's political involvement. <laughs> um, that's where you go to the end notes, I guess. And I've tried to provide pretty exhaustive references to other scholarship, uh, that, you know, previous biographers that other uh, writers have written on. So there are things like that that I think are, um, mm -hmm. that are left out for a reason from the main text. Um, there are other things that I, that I couldn't leave out at all that haven't been in previous biographies. Like if you're halfway through, you'll already be well into the story of Bavinck and Amelia Decker, Dendecker. Um, and that's not in any of the previous biographies. And that's a tragic love story of you know, Bavinck hopes to get married to her from his teenage years until he's 31 and it doesn't happen. Um, but that story actually is profoundly important in uh, how he produced the dogmatics and he channeled his sad singleness into reading a lot of books and writing a lot of theology um, and so it plays a really important part in the in the book that got so many of us into Bavinck but nobody had told that story before so there's some things that were uh, just a real pleasure and were fascinating to get into and to include that certainly could not be left out. That's good. One of the things that you talk about in the book in a few different places is Bavinck has a 
I guess you could say somewhat complicated relationship with America and our show is based in the U.S. and Caleb and I were both training for ministry, most likely in an American context. And also this episode will likely release on or around an American election. So all this lends to reflection on where America has been and where it's going. And Bavink had some thoughts and experiences of America, its society and culture that still seem to resonate today. So maybe tell us a little bit about Bavink's history with America. Sure. So his history with America really begins quite early in his own life because um, so the Bavink family came from a reform denomination that had broken away from the, the approved mainline reform church in the Netherlands um, before they had any legal freedom of religion to do so. So they were persecuted really badly by their own states, uh, violently and so on. And a lot of people from his denomination emigrated to North America. And um, the question of whether that's appropriate, whether the gospel obliges you to stay where you are, even in the face of persecution, or whether the gospel gives you that freedom to wipe the dust off your feet and head somewhere else, sail over to the New World. Those are live questions for the Bavink family. And um, when he was a teenager, his, um, his pastor and the pastor's son, who was his best friend, moved to Michigan. And uh, so America is being mediated to Bavink um, from really early on in his life. But the Bavink family were staunch anti-immigrationists uh, in principle. They were really strongly against this. And, and Herman was as well. Um, but nonetheless, America is always being mediated to him through letters uh, from emigre friends who have now made new lives in America and who have all kinds of new opportunities and who are in this new culture that's creating itself. So the idea of America is always really interesting to Babink, even in his young life. And he's always very curious about, about America. Uh, he'd wanted to go there for quite a long time before he actually did. Uh, the first time he went to America was... Um, and um, so he was a, he was a young theologian teaching in Campen, and um, he he wanted to see America for himself. Um, it was also in a period when Calvinism and this new modern Kuyperian form is really having a huge impact on Dutch culture. And he's basically sent as an ambassador for that to spread this new kind of Calvinism amongst Presbyterians and in the English speaking world. And um, as a young man traveling in America in the 1890s, he also has very high ideals about how to approach foreign culture. So you don't judge it, you just appreciate everything that's different. And so you get a very particular sense of America as charming to Bavink and all the things that are great about it, like the Republicans and the Democrats treat each other so well. And you can both think that you can be a Christian and be in either party and everyone is so civil. Um, and so there are all these really striking um, things that he writes about it. And then he goes back to the Netherlands, still an anti-immigrationist and thinks that America will not ever become a country that embraces Calvinism. Uh, Americans will always be Arminians rather than Calvinists, he thought. Uh, but then in later life, he came back in 1908 to give lectures in Princeton. And at this stage in life, he's much older, more maybe um, conservative in terms of personality, feels much freer to say what he thinks. It was also a very stressful phase in his own life. And um, his writings on America and after the second trip are really uh, hard-hitting, particularly in terms of um, racism. Uh, that was something that he was struck by really powerfully. Uh, he was told all kinds of things that, that he thought were astounding and, and appalling uh, about African-Americans. And um, so then he, he spent a lot of time reading 
literature by African-Americans in that group, Booker T. Washington, um, W.E.B. Du Bois, and uh, then goes back to the Netherlands and makes lots of manuscripts as well in reflecting on his experiences. And um, he, I mean, he came back from that trip um, and gave public lectures in the Netherlands about his fears that the American experiment was going to fail. He didn't see how you could found a culture on enslaved human labor uh, and then um, ever see that work long term unless uh, the gospel had some kind of transformative power. Uh, but he was also... Uh, he was very aware that the that the church in America at that point was also segregated on on racialized lines, and um, so his anti-immigration rhetoric in the Netherlands to young Dutch people was became very different. It became much more um, pointed in saying, uh, "Don't just go to America because you uh, don't just um, stay here so that you don't become Arminian." It was stay here because America could do a kind of bloody, violent civil war and just. Uh, all come to an end. Uh, so the, the really striking things to, to hear from this you know, very careful reformed theologian in his own context. Um, but he also picked up other things in that trip that become very significant to him. Like I mentioned already, evangelism. And that is a huge priority. That He picked that up in America, actually. He was very struck by how America was a melting pot, he thought, where people from all over the world go and then they can all be reached with the gospel and then they're readily placed in terms of all of their different cultural identities to go back to where their parents came from and take the gospel there as well. So America, has, uh, it's, a, it's a very complex thing for him, as you say, and it's really fascinating to get into. I mean, even now, uh, America is such a complex place. Reading those sections from his both trips to America, I mean, it, it, it sounds very much like it could have been written today. Some of the, the comments that Bobbink had made and some of your insights on that, yeah, it's just, it, it was uh, very surprising. Uh, we'd love to get back to that in just a moment. Um, what would be strange to be written today in that trip was that he was received at the White House, uh, Bavink and his wife, <laughs> to meet with this neo-Calvinist theologian. Um, I think if uh, that were to happen today, it would, it would be surprising. <laughs> I think I spent some hour last night uh, sifting through the Library of Congress Go and find the diary entry of, of uh, Theodore Roosevelt on that. And it's um, a pretty simple entry as well. It's Mr. Bavink, yeah. Mrs. Bavink, a theologian of the Netherlands, <laughs> and, and this long list of people that, that um, President Roosevelt met on that day. Yeah, there's such a short little uh, uh, little note there. Um, yeah, my wife and I very much uh, enjoy Theodore Roosevelt, and uh, uh, just cracked me up uh, You know, when you read the comment that uh, Bobbing found him rather unimpressive. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's it's interesting as well to look at why that was the case because Roosevelt was a really fascinating person, mm -hmm. but I think biographically that that was such a stressful phase in Bavink's life, and um, being in a different context like North America where he'd been a couple of decades before, um, it, it brought a lot out of him. I think, uh, and it, so he arrived. Uh, really wrung out and, st and stressed about his political career. It was going really badly in the Netherlands. And um, he found giving the lectures in Princeton, the Stone Lectures, quite stressful too, because people didn't really seem receptive to, to what he was doing. And um, yeah, I'm not sure what he expected from the meeting with Roosevelt. I think by that point in Bavink's life, he, um, he, he, he was really struggling to acclimatize to American manners as well. Like American teenagers really shocked him. He thought they were extremely rude. Um, and um, <laughs> the, the whole trip actually is, is just a bit of a stressful one for Bavink. And, and even going to the White House, 
Um, it might, I guess when you look at the, the record of people that Roosevelt received on that day, it is a long list, and Bavink didn't have very long with him. You know, Bavink had sailed across the, the Atlantic to, amongst other things, to meet the presidents, and then you know, it might have been that the president just didn't really know or care that much. This is just another person for you to shake hands with, and it might have been mm-hmm. a bit of an anticlimax for Bavink. I'm not sure. I would love to put mm-hmm. a fly on the wall in the Oval Office at that particular meeting. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe uh, in part also I hear uh, Theodore Roosevelt had a rather high-pitched voice, so maybe that was uh, a little jarring to him for such a uh, 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 manly man, I guess. <laughs> maybe, and having another <laughs> comment on, on, on voices, actually, it was quite important mm. for him. We hope you've been enjoying our interview with Dr. James Eglinton. We are out of time for this week, so we're going to pause for now. We will have the conclusion of this interview next week with more of Bob Inc. on America. In the meanwhile, check out Dr. Eglinton's new book, Bob Inc., A Critical Biography. If you like Bob Inc., which you are listening to Bob Cast, so safe to assume you do a little at least, we think that book will be very helpful to you in understanding the man that Bob Inc. was. So check that out, and until next time, tote zines! Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.